Welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better, and it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And we are a horror movie podcast. We sure are. <laughs> we talk about, well, we used to talk about a horror movie. Yeah, this episode's different. It's different. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a TV show. Yeah, which we do sometimes, but usually not exclusively. And I usually tie a true crime to the movie, and this is just chock full of true crime. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of true crime. The whole, I mean, so the whole premise is true crime, yes, so yes. it seems like to be redundant to do a true crime based on the true crime show we're doing. So we're going to talk about Mindhunter. Yes. And Which, if you're a fan of the pod, as they call it, uh, you know that we've talked about it several times, especially Kristen. I think the last I, time... On I the changed po- our icon on Twitter to Mindhunter. Yeah. You see that? Yes, and you'll, you'll <laughs> notice that. And I believe the last time on air, she said, I need it, I need it, I need it, <laughs> yeah. in advance of the second season coming out. Yes. Uh, which is, you know, subtle. So... <laughs> But we're both big fans. I love it. Uh, Kristen um, probably loves it more, but it's marginal at best. Okay. All right. Well, first we'll start with what we've been watching. And so what have you been watching? Well, um, I went and saw uh, Ready or Not. Okay. Which is in theaters now-ish. I don't know. Well, by the time (laughs) this airs, I guess it won't be. But uh, um, it is a... uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the trailers, but it's a horror comedy kind of thing. It's, it looks funny. So it's got Adam Brody from the OC, who I love. Yeah, and, and Adam Brody is actually um, probably one of the best performances in the movie. He's really good in it. I didn't and, notice him in the trailer at first. He looks no. he looks much more weathered. and. Yeah, he's playing a little bit against type. Uh, so the premise of the movie, without getting too much into spoilers, but I mean, honestly, it's all kind of in the trailer, is that um, Grace, who is... Is that not Margot Robbie? Okay, there's a big controversy about that. Her name is Samara Weaving, and she's really good in it. Uh I believe she's Australian. Um, Yes. But uh, based on Twitter reactions, it's offensive to say she looks like Margot Robbie or it's offensive to say Margot Robbie looks like her. They're different people. They are different people, but they look so much alike, especially in the trailer where everything's very dark. Yeah, they do look alike. I, I mean, yeah, but when you watch it, she's definitely her own person. Um, but yeah, so she's the fiance of this sort of rich... And it's not so bad to look like Margot or to look like Samara. People are mad about it. I don't know. How dare you? Um, so she is getting married to the sort of younger son of this rich family. So the, the movie takes place on their wedding night. And there's a tradition with this, within this family where basically they play a game. And not, it's not really a spoiler, because again, I think it's in the trailer. The, the game is they basically try and hunt and kill whoever is being introduced into the family. You know, Margot Robbie's Australian, too. Okay, yeah, it's the same person. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's the same person. I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, so it's a really clever movie. It's funny. It's a takedown kind of on the ridge. People are calling it a, like a TV, I mean, a movie version of Succession. I've oh, not, I haven't seen that yet. I've not seen Succession either, but I'm like dying to see it. I want to see it, too. Everyone's... It's on HBO or Showtime? Yeah, I think it's HBO. Okay. I'm literally going to get HBO just for that. 
So it's um you know a black comedy. It's it's not really that scary, but it's super violent. And oh, that's it, nice. It kind of reminds. I mean, just the trailer looks like your next or something like that. Yeah, it's very your next. Your next is better. That's what that's probably what actually bugged me about it because the whole time I was watching in the back of my head, I'm thinking I've seen this before. I'm not really sure where. But then when I left the theater, I realized it was your next. It also has a slightly cabin in the woods type vibe. Mm-hmm. I can't really describe the ending, especially. It's just bonkers. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. You know, there's just, it's just it's pretty original, you know, R-rated, standalone, non-sequel, non-comic movie thing that's out there. All and right. I will say, you know, Samara Weaving, as much as she is probably really Margot Robbie in disguise, <laughs> uh, it is a star-making performance because she is All like right. well, I mean, look, awesome. Look, man. if we can have a Kira Knightley and an Natalie Portman, can we? we can have a Margot Robbie <laughs> and a Samara yeah. Weaving. And, and everybody in it, like the whole family is good. And Andy McDowell's in it. Oh, okay. Um, she's plying out the Andy McDowell-ness, like very Southern draw. It's kind of ridiculous. So what have you been watching? Well, I binged When They See Us. The new uh, Ava DuVernay yeah. miniseries on Netflix. God, I feel like really low class right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took me a bit to work up to it because I just knew it was going to be a tough watch, you know? And then when I started watching it, I mean, I I could not stop. It's, it starts out with the five young boys as children, and there's a child actor who plays each one of them. And then later, they're played by adults. But the oldest kid, who was 16 at the time, Corey... He's played by the same actor as a child and as an adult. That actor, um, Harrell Jerome, he was nominated for an Emmy. He should 100% win. I mean, he was amazing. To, to, to play a 16-year-old and then play himself 16 years later. Well, I saw the news that some kid had been nominated for Emmy, and I just assumed it was for the kid performance. I had no idea that he I was know, playing I know, me too. The way Ava DuVernay does it, too. The way she shoots it and the way it's all set up is amazing, too. So it starts out with all the kids and then, of course, everything that happens. And then there's a whole episodes of just what's happening with the four. Because four of them were underage and just went to juvenile detention. The only one who went to maximum prison was Corey, who was 16. So then there's the whole last episode is just about him. Um, Him in solitary confinement. I mean, I can't even, it's just, it's amazing. There was, you know, a couple of years ago, some sort of documentary, I think it was just called The Central Park Five. Yes, I, that I, was Ken Burns and his, it was Ken Burns? and okay. his daughter. I, okay. I didn't, I haven't seen that yet. I watched uh, most or all of it. And I, I don't remember how I even watched it, but I, so I at least kind of know the basics of the, mm-hmm. it's just been a few years. Um, and I mean, there's so much to get angry about, but then there really is just like so much that was just so much of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So these kids, they all went down to the park, and some of the older boys did, like, beat up some people in the park. And then at the same... Not even at the same time, though. There was these big gaps in time where the female jogger was assaulted and raped and left for dead. And then it was just, you know, the fact that she survived was wonderful, but she did not remember anything. So she couldn't testify as to who or who assaulted her. You know, so it's just all these things were playing against these poor boys who the system was just against and they wanted to pin it on them. Vera Farmiga is in it and she's wonderful. All of the all the actors are great as adults and as children. Does Ava DeVernay, does she direct all of them? Yes. Oh, cool. 
Uh, John Leguizamo's in it. Nisi Nash. Who did John Leguizamo play? He plays um, Raymond's dad. There's one kid who is um, Latino. Well, I'm going to watch it. I mean, it's one of those things that my Netflix, uh, my you know cursor has been hovering over, and then I go to like Fraser instead. <laughs> All right. So, Chris, as you get me some more of our drink, what are we drinking? Oh, you're not near the microphone. <laughs> Nowhere near. So, in honor of Mindhunter and one of our favorite characters, Dr. Wendy Carr, we're having a white wine, which is what she always drinks. Yeah, we're doing a Pinot Grigio. Um, it was hard to pick because there's a lot of drinks in the episode, especially, you know, Bill Tinch. Uh, I can't quite remember what Jonathan Grout drinks. Does he just he drink doesn't, beer? Yeah, he drinks beer. Yeah. yeah, but kind of reluctantly almost. Cause yeah. He's, okay. But uh, Wendy Carr, you know, a.k.a. my girl, um, she's always doing a white wine. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be the most consistent thing. We did a Menage a Trois brand, which is a little bit basic. But at the same time, you know, there is a threesome, yeah. right? And uh, there's, you know, some sexual tension amongst all of them. <laughs> they all just need to get it on. Right. For so, my enjoyment. Yeah. It was a, it was a lazy decision. I'm sorry. Again, <laughs> I can't please everybody. <laughs> So let's start with Mindhunter Season 1. Right. It's 2017. This is when my dad was living in Birmingham. I remember being in his apartment. My parents weren't divorced. They just, my dad was <laughs> living here. My mom was living back in Oregon. Because anyway, it's not important. But... Can we talk about what your dad does? Or My dad is a college football coach. I think this should be interesting for the listeners. I guess it might be. Yeah, her dad was um, a college football coach. He for like 35, at, 40 yeah. years. I don't know. He coached... Uh, he's... I'm not going to say he started. For a long time, he coached for University of Alabama Birmingham Blazers. Yes. And then he went to Oregon Ducks. For about 15 years, yeah. yeah. which removed uh, Kristen's family from the Birmingham, Atlanta metro area. Yes. Um, Left me here with my brother. Yes. Um, but then her dad came back to Birmingham about two or three years ago, right? And you yeah. know, continued coaching maybe. Um, of course, you've all met her dad on yes, the podcast. That's but I don't right. think he talked about what he did, really. I don't know if he did or not. It's interesting. We yeah. should talk about it more. Um, well, I remember being at his apartment thinking, I'm finally going to watch Mindhunter and turning it on. I watched it on an iPad and it started. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. The opening scene is uh, you are kind of introduced to Agent Ford and he's going to try to. He was a hostage negotiator expert, even though he's like 25. But. Um, and then he says it, he's 29. It made me feel better when he said his age. When? At some point in the show, someone actually asked him, well, how old are you? And he says 29. But in season two, he says, I'm almost 30. Yeah, 29. Yeah, but it's been a couple of years. Yeah, season two is like the next day or something. Because she just wakes up in the hospital and he's... Okay, anyway. I, I agree that the show takes a long time to... Okay. The opening scene is just very David Fincher. And then a guy blows his head off with a shotgun. And I was just like... I'm in. It starts with some creepy music, just like the opening credits of Seven, mm-hmm. which I believe sometime one time I text you, will you please play the opening credits of Seven at my funeral? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a Nine Nails remix, so yes, I will. <laughs> um, that is funny they said because the opening sequence is actually kind of atypical of the rest of the show. I mean, like as far as the way it's shot, yes, but the, the there's not a lot of violence and like y- yes, like the, the, in the show. you see the. The aftermaths of violence, yeah. but not like that's that. That's probably the most violent thing that actually happens on screen in the show, don't you think? I oh, mean, that's a, that's interesting to think, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, the point is, like, you definitely feel like you're going to be watching a different show based on that one scene, and then the rest of the show is, you know, a very methodical, dialogue-driven, yeah. moody piece with very little actual violence in it. Yeah. And I remember 
hearing things about it. Anything David Fincher, I was on board. Zodiac's one of my favorite movies. We can pop it on right now. I'll watch yeah. it. I watched it this week. That's <laughs> that's awesome. I knew that he was going to direct the first couple and the last couple, so I was very excited. And then I just binged it. Yeah, I mean, he directed, I think, like six episodes. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, not even the first couple, the first four or something. I noticed because I you know, watched it again. Like, well, he, just keeps, he just keeps rolling, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I had a similar experience. I guess I watched the trailer and I was, you know, mildly interested, but mainly interested because I knew it was David Fincher. But I don't think I really knew he actually directed it. Um, so when the first episode aired and it said directed by David Fincher, I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then the, much less the next episode. Then I realized it was Jonathan Groff, who is, you know, <laughs> my boyfriend. <laughs> okay, so we'll start with Jonathan Groff, who, uh, if you don't know, I know him mainly from Hamilton. Oh, okay. He plays um, King George III. He was nominated for a Tony for that. Was he? Okay, good. Good for him. You know him from Looking. You watched that, Well, right? okay. First of all, I know him from Glee. Right. He played Rachel's first boyfriend. Right, right. Who was, and he was hilarious on it because he's basically the Rachel version of... Uh, is that her name, Rachel? You I know think so. Watch, okay. Yeah, Leah Michelle. He was just the, the, the boy version of Rachel. Right. Um, and okay. he's really funny in it. But then a few years later, um, he did Looking, which was a short-lived... Well, it... Two seasons HBO show about modern gays in San Francisco, and he was sort of the main. No, he was the main character, and he was, of course, you know, just adorable and fantastic. Um, but in Mindhunter, I like him even more because you take all those sort of, you know, kind of funny quirks and him just being a super nice guy and put him in this context, and it's just a thousand times more adorable. And you just want to take him home and feed him soup. <laughs> Well, then I also know him very well from Frozen because he plays the voice of Kristoff. I like him. And he sings the songs in that. Okay. Well, he's a good voice. He does. So he's just so multi-talented and adorable. And then I texted you the other day that I did not realize he dated Zachary Quinto and I almost died. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Because that, oh my gosh, what an adorable couple. Yeah. I had no idea. I love Zachary so much. And I love Jonathan Groff. There's a YouTube video I watched. I mean, I watched a lot of my 100 YouTube videos the last couple of weeks. <laughs> but there's one where um, it just, I think it's from the first season, and it's just some sort of open press conference type thing where people are asking the whole cast questions. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch. And Jonathan Groff said when David Fincher was directing him, his main uh, direction was Jonathan Stop Smiling. Oh. Because Jonathan Groff's natural resting expression is just a smile. It's just, I just can't <laughs> help it. So he's doing Aww. this like. Uh, deep material and he just comes in he's just smiling and then David's just like stop smiling stop smiling and he just has to quit and so he said the whole show he has this very unnatural facial expression which is just not a smile I wonder how they eventually ended up casting him then I mean I, th- I think he's perfect he talks about it on the he just auditioned a couple times he actually auditioned for I believe Zodiac I think he wanted Jake Gyllenhaal's role that'd be good too yeah it's like he, he would have been a little young back then I may, I may have that wrong he auditioned for some other David Fincher project I think it was, I don't know, and he, he lost it either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, he was just on David Fincher's radar, and he just went back and... Well, so Jonathan Groff plays Holden Agent Ford. Holden Ford. Yes. Why do they just call him John Douglas? I don't understand, like, why? what's the mystery? I don't quite get why they change names at all, because, I mean, they don't change the serial killer's names. That's true. So Holden Ford is based on John Douglas, who we also talked about on our Sides of the Lambs episode. Yes. He's the one that Scott Glenn went and shadowed at the FBI. He was one of the first agents in the BSU, the Behavioral Science Unit. 
And so I think, I don't know if we talked about it or not, but he was kind of the inspiration for not only Jack Crawford, but also Will Graham. From the, oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. From the Red Dragon and the Sons of the Lambs books. Oh, you didn't say Hannibal. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and the TV show Hannibal. <laughs> Your favorite thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> He's very uh, kind of uptight. He's very a young upstart. Um, I guess a, one, a wonderkind. All right. So then our other main character is my personal favorite. Well, I've come on board. I've come on board. Uh, Bill it Tench. is almost distracting how attractive he is to me. Yeah. I think by the second season, especially in those uh, sort of leisure suits he wears with the sort of polo shirt, right. I, I, I've, I've kind of come around. It's kind of like my Gary Sinise thing in the stand where I had to pull you along. <laughs> and I don't know how to exactly how to say his name. Holt McCanley? McCanley? I have no idea. It's very Irish. Yeah, I call it McCollany. McCollany. Yeah. It's a very Irish name. Um... He plays Bill Tench, who was based on another BSU agent, Robert Resler, who was the one who coined the term serial killer. There's oh, a, really? there's a okay. scene in um, Mindhunter when they're like, sequence killer? And he says, serial killer. Oh, so Bill Tench says that? Yes. Okay, I wasn't, I couldn't quite remember it. Well, um, but yeah, so Bill Tench is, you know, the older sort of mentor character to Jonathan Groff. Yes. Um, and they have the most adorable relationship ever filmed on screen. <laughs> Well, I don't know if it's as good as Hannibal and Will Graham, is it? It's it's more wholesome because there's no no murder. Right. I mean, it's better than... I mean, there's like, murder, but not with yeah. them. I mean, it's kind of like Jack and Rose. I mean, it's up there with... <laughs> <laughs> it is very interesting. Um, I do love the tension that kind of builds between them and the times when Bill is just done with his shit. I just like when he's nice to Holden. <laughs> It's very rare. But well, like when they get in the car wreck and he yeah, yeah, tries to tell them that yes, he... Yeah. Yes, Do you think that's a, like he... he, he is this idea that he thinks like, like of him as like a son? Kind yes. Of? Okay. Very sweet. Because in that same conversation, he brings up that he does have a son. Yeah, which we'll get to. Yes. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> oh to Brian. So let's just start with them first because Dr. Wendy Carr is also... He, sure. She's the third one in this menage a trois but yeah but she comes in later she comes in a little later so they began doing road school together which is where two fbi agents go to different cities and school the police in different cities right so in the show as presented holden ford is the sort of young very eager fbi agent who's been slightly disillusioned because this opening scene where the guy blew his head off and he's like what i do wrong and and at the same time he's kind of becoming interested in these other other colleagues teaching about serial killers and one of those people is Bill Tinch and mm-hmm. it sort of you know gets his attention but they already kind of show that they already kind of start showing that Holden is not play doesn't like to play by the rules like there's that one scene whenever he is doing a hostage negotiation with a bunch of recruits and he gets them to kind of role play and then the it kind of goes off the rails and you know what I'm talking uh, about yeah, and then yeah. director, director Shepard comes by and he's like what are you guys doing why are we using these these vulgar terms? And it's kind of like he's trying to explain, well, we're just trying to act like what it would be like in a real situation. And he tells him to shut that shit down. Yeah, kind that of based on a Dog Day Afternoon, right? Right, after he's had Dog Day Afternoon with his girlfriend, Debbie. Yeah. Well, we'll get to Debbie, too. We will. Um, but, you know, him and Bill Tinch have sort of a mutual attraction to each other, you know, platonically. But right. It's, it's, I think it's fun that, like, Bill Tinch is intrigued by... Jonathan Groff's character, you know, because you, any other show would be this sort of hard-boiled, 
you know, grizzled character, and he, he is that, but, you know, he'd be also very... But hand- you can also see a softness that he has for right. him. Right. He's yes. openly curious about this guy, and he's yes. not afraid to, you know, show that and be like, you know, oh, I may want to learn new things that this younger generation may be interested in. Any other show would be like, you know, Danny Glover, Mel Gibson, you know, that type right. of thing. They just, they don't do that. I love it. I'm too old for this shit. Exactly. He's... Halfway there, but not really. It's too clever a show for them. So Shepard gives them an office in the basement. Very X-Files, right? I know. I loved it. No one down here. Maybe that's what X-Files is based on. Ah, <gasps> right. Because Mulder was in the behavioral science unit. Yeah, before he was the, the basement. Yeah. No one down here but us. What's he say? No one down here but the FBI is most unwanted. Right. <laughs> and, and then Scully, Scully comes laughs, in. Yeah. And they have a grand old time. Yeah. But there's one point when he says, I'm too old to be in the basement. I'm 44. He's doesn't. I mean, I know in real life, I think he's like in his fifties. I hope so. <laughs> only like five years away from from this guy. No, it's just like wait, wait a minute, what? But I guess he's playing a little younger. Yeah, I act like I'm like this. I mean, I have no hair. I'm like, <laughs> it's not that far of a stretch. And so, as they're in road school, they meet some different police forces. Uh, one, and they kind of realize that police forces kind of start to come to them for help for some of their local murders. One of the first ones is they ask about a murder that happened to a woman who runs a church and her son, if you remember, mm-hmm. and there was she was tied up and sexually abused. And that's the kind of that's the kind of first one that they that they kind of ask for help. Holden is pretty much like, I don't know what to do with this. I can't help you. And this kind of like sparks him to kind of realize we have to figure out what these people are thinking. So while they're in California, this is when Holden decides to go see Ed Kemper. I will say, just before we really get into it, what is fascinating to me is just this idea that only 30 or 40 years ago, there was really no conception of the idea of serial killers. Yeah. Because even watching Zodiac, which takes place at the same time period, roughly, Mm -hmm. this late 60s to early 80s, I guess, the the word serial killer is never mentioned once. Interesting. Which you only, and the only reason I know that is, is watching it in relief to Mindhunter. Like, I'm watching how they talk about the Zodiac. And there really isn't a conversation about that, about his psychology or why he does it or the fact that he's a serial killer. It's just about catching him. Really. But you know what's interesting is that we've done, so far, just the episodes we've done, we've done two serial killers that happened in the 40s. If you remember, the Lonely Hearts Killers. Yeah. And then the Texarkana murders. And that still, it, there was no term of serial killer. But remember in the Texarkana murders, there was that um, psychologist who profiled. Yeah. So there are there were people working behind the scenes. And then it wasn't until this late 70s that they finally started really focusing on it. Yeah, I guess it was just kind of thought about differently, you know. You know. But it, it's, it's funny. I just assumed, I suppose, that that had been in the, the lexicon longer than it had, you know. Right. I mean, the... 70s is just not that long ago. It's not. At all. Uh, I mean, we weren't born, of course, because we were very young. <laughs> but still. Um, right. Which is it's so fascinating to me when Dr. Wendy Carr finally comes in and the three of them are sitting around talking about it and trying to categorize this. And they're working so hard. So we should go ahead and get to Wendy. Yeah. I love but her. I, I do think, you know, just to stay on Zodiac for just a second, because I'm sure. kind of fascinated by this comparison. Because they're very, I mean, it's David Venture. He did the, both yeah, of them. Yeah. Uh, so obviously this was on his mind a little bit, but like uh, Wendy Carr at some point even mentions the Zodiac Killer, and I think she even says like, "Well, is he a serial killer? Is he a spree killer? That type of thing." So mm-hmm. right, button in it, done. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, like you said, they're on they're in the road school, and at some point during the course of that, we're introduced to again my girl, uh, Doctor <laughs> Wendy Carr. 
people are saying it's insulting that people are mixing up Marco Robbie and Samara Weaving. I find it insulting that people are mixing up Anna Torv and Carrie Coon. Right. Well, if you watched the interview, I'm going to show you. Okay. Like in an hour, um, she loves it, and Torb does. Oh, yeah, because someone asks her about that. You know, whether she's seen that, you know, whatever that meme is, or I guess Twitter thing. I, I mean, it didn't affect me because I had not seen anything that Car- Carrie Coon was in yet. It, I watched Leftovers later, you know, and so that by that point, I and I, I'd watched Fringe, so I knew who Anna Torb was. So that, that never was a. A problem yeah. for me. I I I, can, I I guess I get it, but I mean, I just, Antwerp is blonde. The other one's brunette. They don't really look that much alike. But Antwerp thought it was hilarious, so I'm okay with it. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Antwerp plays Dr. Wendy Carr, who is an academic. She works somewhere in Boston. And she's actually based on a real person, too. She's based on Dr. Anne Wolbert Burgess. She's a real person, again, that worked at the BSU. And actually, um, John Douglas and Robert Resler actually did work with her. So, I mean, this is based in a lot of true things. And they, they wrote a book together. Did they work in a basement together? They, probably. They went and drank together, I'm sure. Um, so that's really fascinating, too. Can you imagine being that woman in the late 70s, working in the FBI, doing these things? They all three wrote a book called Sexual Homicide, Patterns, and Motives, was that published in 1988. Oh, was this before Mindhunter, per se? Like the book Mindhunter? Oh, I don't know. When did Mindhunter, when did that come out? And there was a, I got a lot of this information on a, a Vulture article that kind of put everybody, all the actors, like with their counterpart real life person. So I'll put that link up so you guys can look at that and see how, where everybody is based on. And, but apparently, um. Well, that book predated the Mindhunter book. Because okay. Mindhunter, the book didn't come out until 1996. That's so interesting. They, they were working together this whole time, yeah, publishing cool. things, yeah, trying cool. to figure it out. And um, she still works at uh, Boston College. She still teaches there. So we go and meet Wendy Carr. Apparently her and Bill Tench have worked together. Seems to be kind of sometime where they're like, where did they, were yeah, they romantic? Well, because yeah. Jonathan Groff seems to have a crush on her he pretty quickly. He definitely has a crush on her. Yes. Yeah. Which is very cute. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only reason we would think they weren't romantic is because she's... A lesbian. Yeah, so lesbian. But actually, no, that doesn't really mean anything either. You know, she could have easily dated him. No, but also, you also realize that Bill Tench has been married a long time, and he's very much a family man. Yeah. Doesn't seem like that kind of person anyway. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be into her the way that Jonathan Groff is into her. No. He seems amused by the fact that Jonathan Groff is yes. into her. Yes, yes. Um, Someone's I, hot for teacher. Right. And if you've listened to her, you know, now classic American Psycho episode, <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about the fact that... Uh, she uh, studies psychopaths in the in the business world. Right. There's got to be a better way of saying that. But well, yeah, in the business or in politics. Sp- yeah, I think she maybe specifically says she studies them on Wall Street. Uh, okay. So she's not necessarily studying serial killers per se, but when Jonathan Groff and um, you know Bill Tinch come to talk to her, she's immediately she kind of perks her interest, like you know, because she's feels that there's an analog. She's saying something similar, just not in the kind of killable world. But. Yeah, well, she's gung-ho. She's like, okay, let's get this going. And, yeah. and Bill's like, I, we can't do this. And, I, and that's so cute how Jonathan Groff gets so excited. And he's got a little notebook. And she right. says, we can write a, pub, write a book. And he writes really big book. <laughs> 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 he's so funny. Like, just yeah. so suddenly funny. And, the, and who's really funny to me is is Holt, like uh, Bill Tench. He's just so, he makes the, the best jokes. Don't you more scenes of them hugging, though? I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. But yes, and so then they kind of, they, they talk, and somehow, so how does she get out there? 
she just comes and starts kind of well, she, working with them. She first starts to consult. They they invite her out, and she kind of goes to check it out. But mm-hmm. at some point, she gets officially invited by you know the what you say his name was the, the shepherd. Head, yeah. Shepherd. And, well, yeah. So you see, you don't know much about um, Wendy, and then you see she goes back to Boston. And she's in a relationship with an older woman. Right. And she can tell, you can kind of tell from that conversation, she does not think that working with the FBI is a good idea. She kind of finds you mean it. The like, older woman does. Yes. Yeah. She kind of belittles her for it. And at some point, she takes her jacket and leaves. And then she comes and takes the, the full time job. Right. Yeah. But initially, it's more of a just kind of a hobby slash interest right uh, but obviously she's compelled by it and it's very cute when she comes and asks for an office yeah. and then holden says she's staying i know and bill's like yeah you think yeah i mean the show gets like i mean the show starts off great but the show gets like 40 percent better as soon as she enters i mean don't you agree yes. like she's such a good character yes well um, there's just so many good scenes like the, at some point they go and talk to a serial killer or they're investing in getting a murder and they come back and uh, Holden is so excited to talk to her about it but she's on her way to the airport and he's like I'll drive you and they go and talk about it the whole way there so I guess the best way to tackle this is just to kind of you know go through the various serial killers they meet in season one I mean don't you think or is there yeah alright so we have Holden Ford Bill Tench Dr. Wendy Carr Director Shepard who I know he's not as hot as Mitch Pelleggi but Right? Don't even start. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's no 80s Skinner. No, he's no, he's no Skinner. Oh, and then so Skinner also... Skinner would be so supportive of them 100% of the time. I know. Although he kind of is, but... <laughs> so then we're also introduced to um, Debbie. Right. Who is a, a very beautiful girl that Holden, Holden meets, meets at, at a bar. bar. Yeah. And all that is very cute. That first scene is so great with the when they have the dialogue on the screen because the bar is so loud. Yes. Yeah, the subtitles. That's and, so clever. And so we find out that Debbie is a grad student. She's studying sociology. They have a lot of great conversations. But then also, you can also kind of tell she's more of like this free spirit. And Holden is much more uptight. He's a fed. I, I love Debbie. I think she got some shit online about being like annoying or things like that but I don't see that at all but I, I do, love I, Debbie I do think Debbie has a slightly a slight fetish for this sort of conservative guy that she wants to kind of yeah well yeah I mean the first scene she makes him get high yeah, and he's like want, I can't do it right she wants to figure him out and she also wants to maybe corrupt him or right. I, I'm not sure but all their dialogue scenes throughout the entire show are, are great They're she's a great good. foil to him she mm-hmm. I mean obviously I guess the purpose of her character probably is to draw out his thoughts on what he's doing and to have maybe just sort of a counterpoint that's not built in you know um, but, but it's great that she's also clearly very intelligent about all, about all this stuff too mm-hmm. But then you do start to see how he is continually bombarding her with his stuff. She has her own shit going on. She's got finals, and he's constantly making it about him. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely, he's slightly dismissive of her, I suppose. And part of it, I guess, is because she's, I mean, she's not a college student. She's a grad student. There's a slight difference there. But I guess, you know, it's not like she initially works. I mean, she, maybe to his point of view, she's living not quite the real world yet. You know, before and... He's maybe dismissive of that. Hello there. Kristen here. Thank you so much for listening. We want to invite you to come join our Facebook group, 
Sometimes groups are better. There are a lot of cool people in there. We talk about the movies Chris and I review, new horror movies coming out, true crime, pop culture. It's really fun. We would also be so grateful if you would go on iTunes and subscribe and rate and review or subscribe on whatever podcasting app you use. It really helps us to be seen by more awesome people like you. And we want to continue to build this great community. Also, follow us on Instagram at Sometimes Dead Podcasts. We'll post pictures of the drinks we're drinking or pictures of the true crimes we're doing. While you're there, follow Gabby Watts, who does our amazing theme song. Follow her band at Gabby Rots, G-A-B-B-I-E-R-O-T-T-S. And remember, sometimes dead is better. We need to talk about the kind of overarching, there's some cold opens of him and then some ending scenes of uh, Dennis Raidner, the BTK killer. Right. And he was never announced on screen as like the BTK. As soon as I saw him, I said, I mean, yeah. "Oh my gosh!" Because they call him Dennis. There's a the scene whenever he's working and the oh, guy the guy comes down and he wants more tape. Well, I they, was very proud because I think I figured out once they showed the ATT label. Oh, okay. I, I knew that. I, I I didn't know his name was the BTK. Okay. And that's as far as it went. Very now good. I know much more. Yes. But I was very proud of myself. <laughs> I watched his confession on YouTube the other day. Did you? Yeah, it's like 45 minutes long. Oh my the gosh! One in court, you know. No, I haven't watched that. It's not really his confession. It's, it's his testimony before look, the judge. He's also one of the ones that's hard for me. So there's Luke and Magnata, who we talked about last time. Toy Box Killer, Snowtown Murders. BTK is one of them, too. He disturbs me so much. Well, I watched it in bed just on my phone. Just, you know, oh, God. And, uh, uh, I you wonder why you have nightmares. I usually don't watch that stuff, though. It's all because of you or because of, I guess, my husband. <laughs> but, but I want you to see it. It's very interesting. Okay. It's the judge interrogating him about... It's basically his admission of guilt. But right. the judge goes through exactly, like, and what you do next, what you, and it's exactly what's presented on Mindhunter. Wow. Uh, in season two, rather. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. But, it's, but yeah, it's, so in season one, like, we'll just talk about the BTK, what we see of him. We see small snippets of it. We see him mailing a letter. We see him inside of someone's house. We see him tying knots. There's just, it's so ominous. It's very David Fincher. Yeah. And apparently that was all decided to do kind of later like David I Fincher, wondered that why they decided to throw that in yeah, there well yeah Jonathan Groff said in the interview I believe that it, maybe halfway through the season David Fincher decided that he'd be like maybe kind of like a spine mm-hmm. throughout the show mm-hmm. and he just kind of came with that so it was filmed long after they filmed a lot of their stuff and season one ends all by himself yeah with him burning his pictures sure, of yeah. the so you know that this is going to be yeah his Led Zeppelin plays carried on to the next season. So we'll talk about, that's all we talk about the BTK for the first season. We just get these little snippets of it. And then obviously in season two, he has a much bigger role. Yeah. Then they go see Ed Kemper. Mm-hmm. So first, well, uh, just Jonathan Groff. John, yeah. For, yeah. First Holden just Holden, goes. Yeah. So what about Ed Kemper played by Cameron Britton nominated for an Emmy? Yeah. So, so wonderful. And I have watched interviews with Ed Kemper. It's well, pretty- you know, it was an interesting counterpoint to our recent, again, now classic science of lambs episode. Where, you know, we have this sort of kind of iconic interview of the serial killer, you know, motif that's sort of established that I think a lot of things play off now, which was, you know, the interview with Hannibal Lecter with mm-hmm. Clary Starling. And and I think in, in, in that episode, I mean, we're, I, we were kind of discussing whether that was dated, cliched, whatever, and we won't, you know, relitigate that here. But this scene is like so um, 
different, I think. It's, I think it's very original. And what I loved about it is, like, it's, you know, he, he's so decidedly, like, non-creepy. Right, you he just seems like a normal guy. Yeah, I mean... Just talking is, about terrible things. Which is not to say he's not creepy, but he doesn't seem to be trying to, like, make any kind of particular impression at first. Right. You know, he's, like, when we're talking about Hannibal Lecter, for instance, which is, again, a fictional character. <laughs> right. But he's maybe trying to impress Clary Sterling or make a show for her when she shows up in her yes. serial killer interview. Whereas when Holden Ford shows up, maybe... Uh, he just wants to give him an egg sandwich. Yeah, and he's trying to disarm him a little bit. See, I'm a nice guy. I'm a normal guy. Mm-hmm. If you watch the interviews that at Kemper, he, he takes pains to explain how, how much of a normal guy he really is. And, that, and that's how... I, I mean, I think Ed Kemper explains it, or the actor playing Ed Kemper pl- explains it pretty well in the show, is that he did start out as a friend of the cops. Yeah. He hung out. He talked a lot. But so it's fun to watch because Jonathan Groff is so taken in by him. You kind of wonder what would happen if Bill Tinch showed up in that first seat and maybe it would have gone nowhere because Bill Tinch would just shut it down maybe. Right. Well, she kind of tries to do later by that point. He goes to play golf instead. Yeah, but when he shows up later, Jonathan Groff is all the way in already. So Yeah, but, but then, and, then, and that helps that helps Bill Tinch kind of go all the way in. Yeah. And I love how, so they have the scene of him talking about how he cut off the heads and things like that and then they get pizza and then they cut to them eating pizza still talking about it yeah. and then there's a scene later I don't know if it's season one or season two where Bill Tench is like regaling the stories and he's like he told us this over slices of pizza so that's just so interesting that you see what actually happened and then you see that he kind of probably takes this and tells these stories later about, about yeah, what happened yeah I mean what's fascinating is that they're both like I mean I say all that how uh Ed Kemper is sort of trying to maybe seduce uh, Holden a little mm-hmm. bit. And I'm not using that word sexually. I mean, like, right. just trying to get he him to like fr- him. He wants him to be a friend. Yeah. Jonathan Groff is also kind of playing a part a little bit, especially later. Oh, know, yeah, like, very much. Like, the whole scene of the pizza is very much, they're all play acting. Yes. You know, like, you know, as if they can possibly identify with what this guy is talking about. Right. Like, that, like you know, when he talks about that bitch or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. Jonathan Groff does and... But the things that uh, Ed Kemper is saying at the same time are completely horrifying. Uh, and you could talk about, I guess, what this guy really did. Uh, I mean, they, they talk about it, I think put it a lot of it out, out yeah, out there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he murdered he's these the co-ed co-ed killer. Why, okay, so he did cut off the, their heads. Explain his deal. What is the co-ed killer? So his mother worked at a university, and she was very abusive, very demeaning to him. He did hate her very much. And I mean, I don't, I, they're, they're, they explain it so well. In Mindhunter, I mean, Ed Kemper says, um, she told me I could never get girls like that, so I went and got them, you know, and he murdered them and cut their heads off. He buried them, like he said, in the yard, so they were looking at her, and then eventually he murdered his own mother. That's what I was a little confused by, like, and the her friend. timeline, because he murdered his grandparents first. Okay, yes. So he murdered his grandparents when he was, like, 17. He shot them. And then he was released. <laughs> yes. They put him away, and then they released him. He went back to live with his mom. And then he started, he murdered the, the women. Then he ended up murdering his mother and her friend who happened to be there. And people were just shocked. He cut their heads <laughs> off, raped the heads, and put the head, put his mother's head up on the mantle. And then he had mentions it too, like he did, he put her vocal cords down the garbage disposal i just you can't even fathom everything that this man does i mean yeah it's very american psycho yes and ed kemper kind of kicks off a lot of the following serial killers that have a lot to do with their mothers seems slightly unfair 
I guess they were pretty bad mothers. <laughs> I mean, pretty bad. Because <laughs> uh, so we'll get go on to them. one of the next murders is they are asked to investigate a murder these mur- a murder that happened to an older woman and a dog when they're in they're doing their road school and so they kind of investigate it and Holden kind of starts thinking about a profile and writes up a profile about this and she's, he's thinking like he's going to do this again and so what happens is there's another murder that happens it's another woman. And it's a dog that happens again. And they kind of get excited because they're like, holy shit, this profile shit's working. So they go back to that city and start to investigate it. So because of the information that they learned from Ed Kemper, they're talking to the police and one of them says, there's this one guy who's really interested in the in the murders. He's showing up at the scenes. And, that's so, and they're like, let's go talk to that guy. And so, so you see how because of their interviews with Ed Kemper, it's already helping them. So they go and talk to the guy. His mother is a piece of shit. He may be a piece of shit, too. I don't know. But you see her... She's a piece of work, though. I mean, you see her just berate him. Right. So they take him outside and eventually... Oh, and gosh. um, Jonathan Groff and Holt are so good in that scene together. They're like they're playing off each other, and you see the co- the local cop watching, just, just like horrified. Yeah. Wait, no, he's just like, how did you do that? And they get him to confess because it turns out he was acting out and murdering these older women and their dog because of his mother who had a dog too. And then that's when they have a, like and a like, boyfriend. Yes. Was- they have like a celebratory um, toast yeah, and at the, then at the so, PlayStation. Yes, and, and then it goes so, to, you know, it gets to Holden's head a little bit. It's so adorable. Well, then so Holden stands up and says, he starts bringing everything down, which is kind of like a, a kind of a theme of the show too. Bill has to kind of come in and like bring things up again, yeah. and so he starts bringing everything down, and everyone's looking around, and then Bill comes in and, and is like, "Yay, let's drink some more." So that's like the first time you see them kind of use the information they've got so Having far. Having success, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so and I think that's also what piques uh, Winnie Carr's interest. Yes. A little bit. You know, I mean, she's already kind of involved, but when that happens, she's like, oh, okay, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. All right, and so because they're starting to see some success, so Wendy has kind of gone on behind everyone's back and applied for grants, but no one knows that. So then Shepard calls them up to their office and they think they're all in trouble, but they're he lets them know that they've gotten like all this grant money. Yeah, and I will say that that part of the show, like like if winning if she was writing grants, that's a lot of work. I mean, I've done that before. It's so hard. She said, "I've she, been in academia all my life." She would have let them know because she would have had them in, in the same. <laughs> like it would. That's a lot of your time of your day doing that. Well, so she they get a bunch of money, and there's that great scene of them going down in the elevator, and then like these subtle smiles. Yeah. yeah, it's so great. Um, it's, it's, it's a mood, yeah. Bill oh, and um, I mean, we didn't talk about the the one of the episodes ends with Talking Head Psycho Killer playing. Yeah. So good. And I love... So that's why I really wanted Brian to watch parts of the show. It was really funny. When the first season came on, he saw I was watching it all the time. And I said, I really want you to watch... Because he loves David Fincher, too. Um, I think you like it, yeah. No, no, no. It's too much. Because I said, I want you to watch it so much, but you will hate to hear what Ed Kemper does to his victims. And Brian said... I don't even like hearing that sentence. I'm going to go upstairs. So, and then on the second season, I kept talking about the Atlanta child murders. And he said, you, I can't hear you say Atlanta child murders again. Just, it's just a phrase? Yes. It's just too much. So another murderer they go and visit is um, Monty Ralph Rissell. He was a real serial killer. I don't know much about him. He was the, the young kid who talked about raping and murdering 
women in Florida. He blames oh, his dad. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, the guy um, that um, wanted the... Um, big red sodas? Yeah, is that yeah. a real thing? I thought it was big red gum or something. No, it's soda. Because he crushes the can. That's oh, a whole thing. Yeah. I, I've never heard of that. But I've I, seen I, this... I watched this four times. <laughs> what is wrong with me? So Brian went out of town recently with the kids. He's like instantly did the Netflix. He said, "Are you gonna have?" He he, he was like, "Are you gonna?" Because this is when season two came out, and so he was like, when he left, he said, "Are you just gonna have like Mindhunter on in like every room?" <laughs> just like you're having the iPad on your phone and the big TV just blaring, and I well pretty much in your shower. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So then we're also introduced to our old buddy. Jerry Brudos. Yeah, but I, I I would like to circle back to that guy because okay. I feel like that's one of the first times it doesn't quite work. Like they don't quite get what they want to out of him just because he's not that forthcoming. Maybe. Yeah. Am yeah. I remembering that right? He's a little harder to crack. Yeah. He eventually they do get some good information out of him. Um, well, Doctor Wendy Carr finds it especially interesting. Like at, so, he the first woman he tries to rape is a prostitute, and she like lets him do it. That makes him very angry, so he murders her. So they learn a lot from that, but he's not as forthcoming as maybe some of the other people yeah, they talk to. I think your comment is like the things that he doesn't say are, are illuminating. Or, but it's interesting because you know, like a lot of the show is driven by their success with these you know, serial killers, but it's equally driven by something they, they fail a lot. You know, and I think that's. Um, I was reading online. Uh, there's a I think a Vulture article was like. The headline is, what is David Fincher doing with the BTK vignettes? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of them? Because they, they're not really related to the show, exactly. Not in season one at all. Yeah, and season two, a little bit. But you, the point is, you know they're not going to catch him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what happens to him. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be related to John Douglas or mm-hmm. Bill Tench or whatever their names are. And the, and the conclusion was, by this writer and maybe by you know the consensus, is that it's the show that no matter what they do, and all this, you know, work they're putting into it. There are people out there they're they're not going to catch. Oh, interesting. Like there's all this work put into it, and then there's things are just going to slip through their their fingers that no amount of education or profiling is really going to like work out. Like it can only go so far. Right. And then there's even uh, and I think that's uh, and we're just going. I'm just launching into season two, but there's that line where Cameron Britton says. Um, uh, right. every, everything you know is about is based on people that have been caught. Yes. So I'm just kind of bouncing that off of that one guy, you know, that you're talking about because they don't really get a lot out of them. And but that to you know, uh, when your car's point is like, well, that's illuminating too. Right. And I think that's kind of also like you know, there's sort of two tracks of the show: the 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 things they learn, the things they don't learn, and uh, and the BT take K thing, which is you know another main track, is definitely just the things they don't learn and maybe we'll never know. Yeah. Well, also I think they were really spoiled by interviewing Ed Kemper first. Right. Yeah. They really thought, oh great, this is going to be easy. That's also shown much more in season two, which we'll get to. Yeah, and I think they talked about that that interview. We'll watch. I'm assuming okay. we're going to watch it for this, but yes. uh, <laughs> because Jonathan Groff makes a point, like they strike a gold mine when they right. interview Eddie Kemper, and it's like, uh, or maybe they also the Cameron Britton's on panel too, so maybe it's him that says that. But they do get lucky the first time, right? Which is actually, you know, in any other show, it would be different. It would be like the third or fourth serial killer that would pan out. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll, next serial killer. All right, so then we get to our old friend, Jerry Brudos, yes. who we talked about on the and Silence of the Lambs episode. Now classic Silence <laughs> of the Lambs episode. Um, so yeah, go back and listen to that. Jerry Brudos uh, obviously had the shoe fetish, 
which is one of the more interesting scenes to me is there's a point where Bill Tench is getting real worn down with all this shit. He does not go back to interview Jerry Brutus. He can't do it anymore. And um, he says something to Wendy Carr. He's like, this shit doesn't even seem to bother him, um, Holden, who's got headphones on at the time. And then later we see he goes to his girlfriend Debbie's house to have dinner. And she gives him, makes him a great dinner. They have a great time. And then she puts on something sexy for him and tries to be like sexy. And then he notices her shoes. Well, it's, yeah, the exact shoes yes. he bought for Yes. Brutus. And so this completely throws him off. And then you see it really does... This is the first time you kind of see that it really starts to yeah. affect him. And he pushes her off and says, like, this isn't you. And she's like, well, that... Yeah, that's the point, you dumb fuck. Um, and I love that song that plays um, over that. And, it, and that's how the ep- that one episode ends. Full disclosure, I listen to the Mindhunter soundtrack sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially season two, I'm listening to it. And then... First of all, there's a soundtrack? <laughs> Do they have, like, dialogue clips? It's kind of like when I was, went saw Titanic right. six so. times. And then so I listened to the soundtrack so that way I could relive the movie in, no, my, I get in it. my head. I, I haven't listened to Once Upon a Time in, in the Hollywood soundtrack. Okay. Like. And, but I, it would never occur to me to do it for Mindhunter. <laughs> but I love that song that plays over the end. What I have, is it? It's, um, I want to kiss you all over and over again it's a, it's a 70s song it's awesome it's in that, yeah. so it's great but that's the first time you kind of see him start to like it's one of the most disturbing scenes in the show not disturbing but uncomfortable mm-hmm. like you know just the fact that he is so nakedly uh, I don't know it, it, it bothers me the fact that he can't uh, like I can't imagine what she must be thinking in that scene because yeah. he's been very because they make I guess I guess that's why they make the point earlier on the show to show how uninhibited Sexually with her, he really can be. Yeah, which is, yeah. Uh, you know, they have the, some pretty gratuitous sex scenes. Yeah. Um, and so I guess maybe they do that to show how unusual it is that he can't perform with her. Well, it also kind of goes back to a time when Wendy Carr is talking to them about how would you feel if you were with a woman and you couldn't perform? And they both are like, well, I'd be embarrassed. And I she feel says, bad. be a scientist, yeah. Yeah, so kind that. of, yeah. Come on, be scientist. <laughs> She's so good. She's so good. Can she be your friend? No, okay, sorry. <laughs> so That's a good point, though, yeah, because is that, the, is that the same episode? I think it is, maybe. Oh, that would make sense. I mean, I think it kind of um, applies to the Monty Ralph Bissell, the the guy who... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. so it might be, but be, it's all, it's all yeah. in there. Be scientist. And there's so much that is about, so much wrapped up in it that's also about sex. And yeah. they, they make that pretty clear. So let's go on to our next big murderer, who is huge one, who is Richard Speck. Yes. Does he have a nickname, or is it just Richard Speck? Richard Speck. Who's a nice stalker? Richard Ramirez. Yes. Okay, I get them confused. I'm sorry. Um, and so I know a lot about Richard Speck. Again, I'm going to bring up one of my favorite books that I mentioned in the Witch episode, I think. It's that True Crime Anthology book. It's got a bunch of great short stories and things written by... there's. There's things written by Abraham Lincoln when he's a lawyer and he was on a murder case. It's it's great. And then there's a but there's a, a short story in there called Nine Nurses All Beautiful All Dead. Oh, that's the nurse killer. So he was yes. the one from American Horror Story. Yes. Oh, okay. I had no idea. Yes. Um, and so that is that's one of those stories too that sticks with me. It's it's, it's a true account of what happened. So I wonder is he more of a spree killer? 
I mean, because wasn't that just sort of his one deal, just the nurses? and? Yes, I think he would be considered a spree killer. Interesting. Um, and they also talk about that how he was, they were talking about at that point as organized and disorganized. He was obviously disorganized because he had been drunk all day and then he kind of just like showed up to this person's house. He was so drunk that he forgot the person that opened the door was the one that he forgot to murder because one girl survived, you know? Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. But yes, that's also um, portrayed in American Horror Story. Right, maybe season two or season I one? I think it might, season, might be Murder House. I haven't seen that in so long. Well, another thing about Richard Speck that was that's interesting is, if you remember, they talked about him on Mad Men. Do you remember that? No. Oh, so. I think we talked about this before. So Sorsha Mamet, remember, is she works for the newspaper. She's a photographer. Yeah. She's, she become friends with Peggy. Yeah, she has a crush on Peggy, yeah. Yes. And at one point she comes in, because this happened in 66, and so she has photos from the crime scene. She brings them into the office and everybody looks at them. You remember that? I don't really remember now. Oh, okay. That's great, though. Yeah, it was it was pretty terrifying. Well, in the show, he's kind of presented it's almost as a Whew, He's a mess. Yeah, I mean, but he's... I he's don't know. gross. He's gross. He's, he seems... He's got a dirty mouth. Just... As they, I mean, maybe this is intentional, but just like a dumb fucking hick, you know? Yeah. Like, not someone you necessarily want to be engaged in a conversation with. Not much that you're going to really learn from them. What, is it not so funny when he comes in with the bird and they say, what's that in your hand? And he says a bird. And Jonathan Groff goes, aw. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill Tench gives him just like the look of just yeah. like. Which is kind of on brand against it. There's this idea that Jonathan Groff's character is, you know, slightly, I don't know, just antisocial, maybe, you know, on the spectrum somehow. And Well, he's also very excited to meet him. He brings yeah. his clippings. Right. But also maybe he would love animals more. You know, so. <laughs> and then he wants to see his born to raise hell tattoo. Yeah. And he, he kind of but, panders to him. But yeah, I, I took that as half curiosity, half pandering. He maybe kind of figured out that this guy would be... Well, I think the awe, the awe. No, that, that's for real. That's, that's that just came out of him. This is a big plot point in season one when Holden is very lewd about the murdered women. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, um, it kind of throws Richard Speck off and kind of op- makes him start open up and start talking about things. But yeah, Holden gets too comfortable with these serial killers and he gets, and it's a little bit unclear, you know, how comfortable he is talking the, the way he's talking. And I'm not going to say right. what he says. Right. I won't, yeah, um, we won't say that. In the other show, it'd be like he's going like to the dark side or something. They well, don't quite he, go he there. He says but. to Shepard, if you want to get the truffles, you got to get in the dirt with the pigs. Sure. So that is what that is what he's operating on. That's what he feels. He, you have to talk to them on their level is what he He seems thinks. to get there pretty quickly, though, with yes. with, with a lot of ease. And it's, it's, you know, I guess that's the idea. It's just a little unsettling. And they, they don't make... You know, it's, it's not like they're saying he's going evil, but, you know, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I like the way they handle it. And Jonathan Groff is such a... He's almost the perfect actor for that part because he is such a... He's just a, a sweet person, a kind person by nature. So the idea maybe is that maybe anybody can kind of get to that level if they, you know, push themselves. Right. And so they, they do get some good information out of him, out of him that, they, that Wendy Carr appreciates. He also throws the bird into a fan. Right. Which I also like later, again, like Bill Tench will, you'll hear him kind of regaling these stories later um, at dinner parties, you know, and then he threw it into a fan, you know, whatever, <laughs> over a, over some scotch. 
And then so when I get back, Bill is like, you know, Holden, you should probably get that. You know, maybe say it got messed up. Holden doesn't give a shit. Yeah. So they need to hire someone else, right? So they're interviewing people. And so we see Agent Barney, who's a big player in season two. He's the black guy from Atlanta. They interview him. But Shepard brings in the new guy who is friends with his dad. And that's Greg Smith. His name on the show is Greg Smith. Yes. Okay. And so he is brought on and they're pretty much like, well, we had to hire this guy. Yeah. And it's clear nepotism, but they don't quite trust him. And rightly so. Right. Yeah. And so that's what I was referencing in the Silence of the Lambs episode when they were talking about how Scott Glenn listened to the Bitteker and Norris tapes, which are the those horrible tapes of them torturing and murdering women. Yeah. It's just it's it's an audio, and there's a scene of Agent Smith listening to it. He's all distressed. Oh really? Oh, yeah, that's what the... that's what he's listening to because Holden's trying to like break him in. He doesn't think that he has what it takes for this. Oh, okay. Does he actually say this? Like this is the blah 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 tapes you listen to yes because I then I googled it and then I f- felt awful that I did I didn't want to know uh, so Greg Smith is the new agent and so Holden tells him transcribe these but maybe forget this one little part and so Agent Smith does that and he makes his that it's an inaudible whatever yeah Wendy finds the tape and oh, listens to it loose, so yeah. she figures out what happened and they're like what? Do-? so she goes and tells D.A. Shepard so everybody knows now that there was an edit taken out of him being lewd. And they decide to forget it. Let's just forget it. But then the end of maybe episode seven or eight, you see that Greg mails it to... Internal... Yes, whatever. internal affairs oh, or whatever. Oh, um, Office of Internal something. Right. Uh, or No, Office of Professional Review, OPR. Oh, because this all gets started because Richard Speck files a civil complaint mm-hmm. against them saying right. that Agent Tench fucked with his head. Yeah. I or mean, no, Agent, yeah. Agent Ford fucked with yeah. his head. So it's all part of the same piece, yeah. Right. And so it's all kind of makes Which a big he mess. did. He did. Yeah. But he was also complaining about being left alone while the FBI agents walked by so it made it look like it was maybe ratting on people. Right. There's another piece to it that, you know. Yeah, but they said that they had this signed form saying that they had told the jail not to let them know that he right. was coming. Well, they so didn't do that, yeah. The jail didn't do it, yeah. yeah. Um, this is all kind of jumping ahead a little bit because it ends with Holden being interviewed by the DOJ again and then him saying, you know, fuck this. Right. I'm out of here. And he walks out of the meeting. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, there's one more murder that we forgot. And this is a true murder. This is uh, Jean Devier of... Of Georgia, and you know he's the one. Well, I mean, who, they're all true, right? Aren't, aren't all they? Um, they most of them are true. Yeah. The, like the one we talked about, like the the one who was murdering the old ladies. That's not a real person. Hmm. But Jean Devier is a real person, and he did murder a twelve-year-old girl. Played out pretty much the same. They put the bloody rock in front of him to get him to break. All that kind of was the same. And that's a great scene when Holden's really taking control of everything, and he's telling them what to do, and he's yeah. just like so. In charge. Pretty much everything they've learned from these killers absolutely comes in into use, and they, it you know, is executed perfectly. But mainly by Holden. Right. Yeah. But Bill's I mean, kind of there, but Holden is has taken the reins, and but he, I think Bill, even in season two later, admits that that's like a major coup for them, and it's based on their 
their work. You know? Well, and that's and also in season two, we'll get to that too. But Tanya, who was the the woman who worked at the hotel, she says, you know, Jean Devier, mm-hmm. he caught him. Yeah. You know, because that was a big deal in Georgia, I guess, at that time. Is what do you think about the tickling principle? <laughs> I heard you. I heard what you said, and I was thinking like. <laughs> Like it's like a like a like a tickling principle like a like a like principle not like P L E like a like a mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah I don't know that's a great um, that's a great episode for sure I don't know what to think about it I mean it, it definitely gets into sort of minority report type profiling you know at the same time it's like don't be tickling your kids I definitely think. There's an issue there with don't tickle the kids and give them money. It's just... 100%, yeah. And then the way... The the fact that he would not stop. Also, I don't know if I necessarily agree with Holden. That's interesting because he also... He brings Greg with him. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I feel like everybody's wrong. Everybody. Like, you know, he had not committed a crime yet. There was... A report filed against him by a coworker, but that is not a matter for the FBI behavioral science department. That is an HR issue, right? And however, maybe this, maybe Holden saves hundreds of kids, pain and trauma. Whatever. I mean, it's a great episode because it brings out those exact questions. I don't think there is an answer. Well, I mean, that I'm also, curious you know, if that's a real thing. Is that based on a real story? Do you know? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it, it could be, but he also, you know, he talks to Debbie about it, and Debbie is like, "Well, there was a guy like that at my school. Apparently, he was doing more than just tickling to a lot of these girls. We didn't find out till thirty years later. Yeah. I mean, not I, thirty years later. She's only twenty-five. But there was a guy like that at my school. That he's he's in jail now for right. I mean, uh, I can. Oh, I won't say his name, but you know. You know, he was my fourth grade teacher. Oh my gosh! And he's in jail for abusing uh, several young girls. And this came out decades later. Right. There's always rumors about it. In fact, there was rumors back in around the time it happened, and the entire church uh, did a fundraiser to pay his legal fees because this Christian would never do this. Oh and, my gosh! And now it infuriates me because it. And so that's kind of all playing out in my head when I watch that scene. Right. At the same time. The guy has legal rights. Holden, he should not be involved in that. Right. Uh, but it's a fascinating episode. and uh, But it also kind of shows, like, Holden thought he had so much power because he'd been going to these small towns, and the local cop was like, hey, can you help me with this? And so he'd help him. Yeah. So then the teacher comes to him, and he's like, hey, can you help me with this? And so he feels like that he has this power, and he can do that. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of the point. He maybe is, you know playing God a little bit or you know a little bit maybe just a little bit too big for his britches at some point but that's just not something he can solve and there's no crime committed yet right it's, I mean there's jurisdictional issues he's the FBI it's, I don't know I mean that guy should not be taking his kids and that guy should be fired but it's just not and he just happened to be to, there because he was invited to talk to the children right. about disturbing behavior yeah. <laughs> and, and great that he did that to this fictional character but when that when his wife comes up in the elevator in that scene she is right to be angry and his and Holden's girlfriend is right to be, to dump his ass later because I, I just think the whole thing is creepy it's yeah it's a mess yeah was that too strong a reaction no <laughs> so we have one last murder which I think is one of the most gripping it's not a real murder either I mean that could be based on something I don't know but that's um, 
the murder of Beverly Jean Shaw. If you remember, they go to another small town. And they're sitting in the car, and they see a police officer come over to them. Oh, and yeah, they're he like, he's going to talk to us. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so uh, the murder body of this young girl has been found in the dump. You see the crime scene photos. It's pretty disturbing. Her hair has been cut off. and um, But so they find this woman's body in the dump. It's a small town. They start to investigate it. All that is very fascinating. They go and interview her boyfriend, who is Benjamin Barnwright. That's his, the character's name. Um and that the small town cop doesn't understand how these things work. It all is very fascinating how they finally untangle it. And it turns out that it was not only her boyfriend, but his brother-in-law and his sister who are all involved in the murder. So messed up, yeah. And his brother-in-law's, you know, a piece of work too. Yes. DA wants to just charge Benjamin. And this is when Dr. Wendy Carr has to come and try to explain. But no, he was pushed by his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law is actually, it's kind of like kind of a Manson thing. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. Because he has, a, he has an easy prosecution. Yeah. To, or an easy case to prove, and he doesn't need this complicated narrative. Yes. It makes sense, a certain amount of sense. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's another example of, you know, all their hard work being you know, frustrated by people, A, that don't understand, but also the fact that they're kind of far out on the fringes of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a tough one. Yeah, well, he, the, to my understanding, the prosecutor just went after the brother, right? Yes. And just, uh, but it was great. And that's a great, you know, showcase for Antwerp, too. Can we talk about the cat? Yes. Yes. All right, the other major subplot in season major, one. Is it a major subplot? <laughs> to me, it is. Okay. It takes up easily four episodes. Uh, Tor gets this pretty fierce apartment at some point when she moves Oh, my in. gosh, with the... Yeah, with the cool panels. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's funny that she liked that apartment. You think it's almost too like too much color for her or something, but you know, whatever, girl. Um, so she gets this apartment because she's got this full time job with Bi, and then there's suddenly all these scenes of her by herself, doing laundry, doing tasks, and in the laundry room she comes like pawn. Or she hears what she thinks is a cat, mm-hmm. right? They never show. It's like it. it's in the ducks or something. Yeah, they never show the cat. No, it's not on screen. So she starts feeding it tuna fish, um, I believe, from her, you know, yes. from piled tuna fish. <laughs> and so she wakes up one morning, she goes to get her laundry, which who, who does that, whatever, but, um, and uh, it's gone. So she's like, great. Uh, and then that happens a couple of times. Well, in story is she wakes up one morning and she goes to get, and this is like the last episode, probably the first season, I'm guessing, is she goes to get the, the can and it's... Not only has it not been eaten, but it's just rotten with like maggots. Ants. Or ants. Tons like, of ants. Tons yes. of ants. And she drops it, and ants go everywhere. And then she, it kind of bothered me that she left it there because. Right. Well, she's freaked out. I guess, yes. So, what is that about? Well, I mean, it obviously kind of seems like they're playing cat and mouse. I hate to say it like that, but I mean, like she's trying to attract the cat. And so she keeps putting out this can of food to try and get it. And then when she realizes what she has she doesn't want that so it makes me kind of think that she's trying to talk to these serial killers or break them down but she doesn't want to hear she doesn't actually want to know what they're like or she doesn't want to do what it takes to get to them no i know i know counterpoint i guess my thought is that you know is a similar that you know she thinks she's onto something with this project you know maybe she thinks she's helping Mm-hmm. by doing uh, this work 
but at the end of the day, uh, maybe it, you know she's not 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 only is she not helping at all, maybe she's making things worse somehow, mm-hmm. and maybe that's kind of her fear. Because again, the cat is never shown. The cat may not even fucking exist, for all we know. Um, and so, not only is there not a cat, but the there's just it's just death and disease, and she's just somehow poisoning the well somehow by doing this work. And maybe that's kind of some some subconscious fear she has. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, think about it, you know, she's in the basement, the, this laundry room. Like I don't know. It's I mean, I, I it's think all it, metaphor. And it makes yeah, no well, sense. I think it more is like she thinks. That she's going to get, like, maybe this work she's doing is going to pay off and she's going to get this this sweet little kitten, but it's not. It's going to be a pile of gross ants and she's not going to be satisfied with it. I think we're, yeah, I think we're kind of saying this okay. similar things. <laughs> uh, I'm getting a little more obtuse about it, I think, but yeah, I, I, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I just take it as sort of more about just sort of this idea of failure, like, uh, you know, She's thinking doing one type of work, but in the day maybe it doesn't. It's not going to pan out like that she wants it to. Right. And maybe what she thinks she's accomplishing, a.e., she thinks she's feeding this cat. You know, real in reality, she's maybe even feeding into the 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 psychopathy in general. Like maybe she's even helping these people that Holden and uh, Tinch were talking to. Who knows? You know. Hmm. I don't know, but either way, I eventually decided. Okay, this is obviously a point about her own state of mind. It's not. We're not supposed to be terribly invested in what's really happened with this cat. Right. It's all right. about. I mean, although I was like, which is okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I think that's clearly the idea. Once I kind of wrestled with it. Right. Uh, and that's how season one ends. <laughs> well, season one actually ends when Holden walks out of the meeting. He decides to go see Ed Kemper again. Oh, that's because, such a great scene. Yeah. So Ed Kemper has been sending him letters and pictures. He's been kind of putting them up. It kind of reminds me of again of Zodiac, when the Zodiac is sending letters to um, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't think of his name. I, I want to say it's it. Paul Allen, Paul, but I think uh, Paul Avery. Paul Avery. I was saying yeah. Paul Allen because yeah. of the American Psycho. Can we talk about how great Bob Allen Jr. was in that movie before? He's so good. I mean, he's the greatest Iron Man. But remember when he was. Didn't have to do Iron Man every couple of years. Yes. He could be crazy, Robert Downey Jr. He's just like it's so subtly funny, yeah. and then he's also just like it's heart wrenching at the end. Yeah, my favorite scene of all time for whatever reason is just him and Jake Gyllenhaal, and this is just seventy years of the episode. I'm sorry, but just him and Jake Gyllenhaal at that bar getting the the flu drinks. Yeah, and Jake Gyllenhaal drinking that super girly fruity drink. And he said, "This cannot be ignored exactly. anymore." <laughs> Such a funny line. <laughs> And then they're suddenly drinking the dreams. Yes. Uh, and then I there's mean, like three of them empty. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, love him. Anyway, go ahead. But yes, so uh, it kind of reminded me, not exactly, but like he's getting letters from the Zodiac. Um, Paul Avery does. And so he's getting letters from Ed Kemper. He's like putting up on his up on his wall. Yeah, he's proud of them. Yeah. And then, so at some point he gets a call from the medical facility where Ed Kemper is saying that he's his medical emergency and he doesn't go at first, but then he has this meeting and then he decides, fuck it, I'm going to go. So he goes to see Ed Kemper who had just tried to commit suicide. And then it's a horrifyingly tense scene of him talking to Ed Kemper. And then Ed Kemper actually gets out of bed and corners him and yeah. gives him a hug. It doesn't quite, it's even creepier. It doesn't quite, I'm not like, you know, challenging you but it isn't so much his corner room it's just like lure over him he's so big he's so big yeah 
And he's yeah, six nine, Chris. Yeah, and you know the six nine. But when he gives him that hug, I mean, I would have, I had a panic attack watching it, much less. Yes. And so then he runs out to the hall and he collapses, yeah. and that's how it ends. And that would be fine if that was the only panic attack that I ever had on the show, because it makes sense. It's like not necessarily. Doesn't he be diagnosed? It, I mean, he had just got hugged by Ed Kemper. Right. Well, and Ed Kemper is like, um, I could, I mean, he waits for the person to leave. Yeah. And he oh, tells that's him. so creepy. So creepy. There's, you know, there's no security in ICU. Yeah. So yeah. He's, he's, he's threatened. He's yeah. being threatened. And the whole weight of everything that has just happened the past mm-hmm. year, whatever it is. He just broke up with his girlfriend. Yeah. Which he we didn't talk about out, that. Right. Um, although, I mean, I am kind of with her on that. I, you know, I mean, I would never break up with Jonathan Groff. Don't get wrong, <laughs> but he—I mean—he's a bad boyfriend. Let's be honest. Yeah, and then the way he ends it too is just so abrupt, and he's just like, "Well, I'll come get my stuff." Yeah, I do love how he figures it out though, and you're yes. breaking up with me. <laughs> well, she asks him. She's like, "Yeah, you figure it out," yeah. and he does. And but she's, you she's kind been... of wonder: Has she really even made up her mind about it herself? Like, does he figure out for both of them? It's a great scene. It is. It is. Yeah. Let's watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's season one. Yeah, well, and we didn't acknowledge that it also ends with the Led Zeppelin song, you know. Right. Which, you know, it's interesting in itself because it's very hard to get a Led Zeppelin song. They don't release their music to anybody. Well, this so. is kind of like in Mad Men again when um, when Megan bought Revolver. Yeah, they played Tomorrow Never Knows. So yes, and, I, and I, as soon as they played that, I was like, holy shit, that's the real song. How much did that cost? Google, 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 $200,000 just to play it. On that very end. Yeah. I mean, that's still a bargain. I mean, like, you know, Rolling Stones sold Start Me Up to Microsoft for $3 million back in 94. Okay. So um, it's just interesting. But that's a recurring Right, ad. right. For sure. For sure. But it's just an interesting thing when you know about these type of things. It's like, oh, well, Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. sold a song. Mm-hmm. The only thing, thing they, they very rarely do that. Um, so I just like to think they, you know, are fans of either Dave, Dave Venture, Venture or John Hingroff. <laughs> Probably Dave Venture. <sighs> Um, but yeah, so it ends with a in the light playing from physical graffiti, uh, and that great scene of the BTK killer, who we don't know as such. I mean, obviously you do, but it's yeah. unsort of. Yes, it's not announced on the show. And he's burning his his creepy photos or his uh, drawings. His drawings, yeah, yes. which have been seen by the the person in the copy center, right? The library. Is that season one or season two? Am I getting confused? Season two. I'm sorry. Cancel that. But yeah, it's it's super creepy scene. Uh, so I think that's everything on season one. Yeah, absolutely. So best uh, show ever. It's a, a damn good show. Yeah. <laughs> it is is probably legitimately. If I watched it another time, that would, I, I mean, I don't even. That probably is one of my favorite shows of past few years for sure. So this is not just a Christian, you know, serial killer fascination. It's a legitimately good show. All right. Well, I think we're gonna have to do a part two for season two. Okay. You think? Yes. We probably need to go get some food. Okay. <laughs>